Hello, noir mystery fans, and welcome to Thunder Road by Colin Holmes. I'm Gabe Shear, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to each one of our episodes of Colin Holmes' genre-bending mystery, Thunder Road. Chasing down a small-time gambling debt in the summer of 1947, down-on-his-luck former Ranger Jefferson Sharp soon realizes that more than a few poker chips are at stake when he stumbles upon a conspiracy between the CIA, the U.S. Air Force, and the mob, aimed to cover up a secret of otherworldly proportion. This book is a little western, a lot noir, and spiced with just a touch of science fiction. But that's not the only reason why I am excited about this story. No. Thunder Road is one of those unputdownable books that keeps you up at night, reading or listening well past your bedtime. It's a book to live in. In episode one, we meet former Fort Worth cop Jefferson Sharp, who spent World War II fighting his way through the muck and mud of Europe. When he finally returns home, the only law enforcement job he can get is racking cattle rustlers across the mud and muck of Texas sleeping on the ground with his father-in-law as his boss. This is not your typical private eye story. It's a genre-blending mystery wrapped in a secret surrounded by a question. And maybe, just maybe, the answer is found somewhere along Thunder Road. Camcat Publishing presents Thunder Road by Colin Holmes. Narrated by Grover Gardner. For Elisa, who may not believe in aliens, but she believes in me. Chapter 1 June 1947 a thin flicker of flame licked the blue enamel coffee pot as Jefferson Sharp stirred life into the embers of last night's campfire. He broke his morning stare and cocked his head as a shiver brought him fully awake. The herd was moving, shuffling uneasily through the woolly ground fog. Somewhere off in the pre-dawn darkness, a mechanical whine spooled up, echoing across the ranch lands of the rafter bee. He shot a glance at the small oak where he'd tied Dollar the night before. The buckskin quarter horse flicked his ears and danced at the end of the lead rope, pulling the branch with him. Easy, fellow. Sharp tried to calm them both, but Dollar pranced and threw his head. To the west, the wine increased in volume and the morning mist glowed with enough purple light that Sharp could make out the terrain through the patchy fog. Whatever had the livestock spooked was just beyond a small rise. Sharp buckled on his gun belt, and his hand found his colt. Not the six-shooting cowboy revolver of Gentry Ferguson's King of the West movies, but a well-used Army-issue forty-five automatic that had followed him home from the European theater. All through that war, Sharp had explained that, yes, he was from Texas, but that didn't make him a cowboy. 
He'd walked the beat as a cop before the war. Didn't own a horse, have a ranch, or ever slept out under the stars or tended cattle. So naturally, here he was two years later, camped out on a ranch with a borrowed horse, guarding cows. He patted Dollar's shoulder as if that would settle the horse, then hiked up the hill in the low crouch that had been driven into him on too many mornings in the infantry. When he was two steps up the hill, the earth rumbled with the tremor of aggravated shorthorns thundering away from the noise and light. Sharp had been a special ranger for the Fort Worth and Western Stockmen's Association since the war, but he'd yet to be involved in a stampede. Of course it had to happen now, he thought, before sunup, in the fog. He had no place to hide as dozens of terrified red cattle came bellowing over the rise. He scrambled back to the campsite. He could see the white faces on the lead pair of Herefords when he yanked the colt off his hip and fired twice into the air. The startled cattle reeled and parted right and left at the gunfire, the herd splitting to flow past the campsite like a stream around a rock. Luck and the good Lord favored the ignorant. Sharp shooed the last of the stragglers past as the adrenaline drained away. That, he said to the nickering quarter horse, is enough excitement for today. The mysterious wine disagreed. Pulsing lights strobing red, purple, and golden orange rose from beyond the hill. The apparition moved over the ridgeline and the fog glowed. Behind Sharp, Dollar screamed a whinny and reared, trying for all his might to pull the scrubby tree out of the ground. The branch cracked. Sharp dove for the lead rope and dug his heels into the damp earth before Dollar could bolt. Something was out there with the man and horse, and the smarter one of the pair wasn't sticking around to find out what it was. But the light show could move as well, and it did. The brilliant colors rotated in concert with the wine as it became a deafening howl. The hovering glow spun together into an intense white circle, levitated high over the hill, and disappeared into the morning fog. Instantly, the noise changed course and roared back over the camp. The lights flashed overhead, then vanished at incredible speed, leaving a dying echo and a breeze that moved the wisps of fog. Sharp and Dollar stood frozen as whatever the hell it was blasted above them. They shared a look, and then the quarter horse went full rodeo, bucking, jumping, and twisting, anything to get out of this halter, off this rope, away from this tree, and back to the safety of the barn, any barn. It took five minutes of profanity and cajoling, but Sharp finally calmed down the panicked gelding. He took a good hold on the halter and led them back to the campsite. Look, I don't know what it is either, but I'm pretty damn sure it doesn't eat horses for breakfast. Dollar's wild eyes and flicking ears suggested that he was not convinced. Sharp remembered that something else was out there. Sixty-four head of cattle the Stockmen's Association was paying him to keep track of. Now they were scattered from here to Mingus, and he and Dollar would be all morning rounding them up. He gathered his blanket, saddle, and tack and put Dollar together. He just slid his lariat over the saddle horn when a second set of lights and mechanical noise came crashing from the direction the cattle had headed. 
A heartbeat later, a Studebaker steak bed truck followed by a stock trailer busted through the mist. The truck swerved to miss the tree and scattered Sharp's camp all over hell and back. The left front fender just missed Dollar, but the rusting hulk still managed to roll right over the campfire and crush the coffee pot. Sharp caught the horse between crow hops and swung onto Dollar's bucking back, cussing a blue streak. He found his stirrups and the quarter horse squatted, then took off like he was out to win the Kentucky Derby. Halfway up the hill, Dollar found his stride and charged into a rising sun rapidly burning its way through the fog. Sharp ducked down behind the buckskin's bobbing head and spurred again. The rustlers tore across the prairie, the trailer bouncing left and right as the cattle trapped inside bawled in terror. Sharp slapped Dollar's rump and the pair thundered across the ranch land, gaining on the rustlers. Sharp unlimbered his colt and shouted for all his worth, Stockman's special ranger, pull over. The answer came from the passenger side. A great bearded ox of a man filled the window ledge. The ox bounced along with the truck as he produced a Winchester and leveled the rifle across the roof of the cab, aiming at Sharp. The rifle cracked and Sharp yanked Dollar's reins, trying to put the trailer between them and the rifle. The truck swerved, exposing him again, and another round snapped off. Sharp raised himself in the stirrups and unleashed his anger from the barrel of the colt. He didn't care that at full gallop, firing between hoofbeats, he stood almost no chance of hitting the gunman, but his second round ricocheted off the cab and drove the ox back inside. The third shot tore the rearview mirror off the driver's side. So much for his expert pistol rating from Uncle Sam's army. That was enough for the rustlers. The truck and trailer accelerated, the cloud of dust growing as it began to pull away. Sharp took aim at the front tire, and just as he squeezed off the shot, Dollar screamed and the world fell out from under him. The ranger flew high over the horse's head for what seemed an eternity before slamming back down onto the hard-pan prairie, sliding and rolling to a stop through yucca and scrub juniper, coming to rest in a stand of prickly pear. Sharp lay there on his back, gasping to force air back into his lungs, slowly becoming aware of the pink morning clouds overhead. It took him a long moment to get around to taking inventory. Both legs moved. He had a pretty good pain in his left shoulder, might be a collarbone, he tasted blood, but waved that off as a bit lip rather than anything internal. Slowly, he sat up. It was possible there was an entire cactus up his ass. In the dusty distance, brake lights came on as the rustlers found the gap they'd cut in the barbed wire fence. Sharp groaned his way to his feet and shook his head, watching the truck and trailer turn onto the highway and head off toward town. He pulled a paddle of prickly pear from his backside and retrieved his crushed resistol. As he slapped the battered hat against his leg, he turned, and the bad situation got worse. Twenty feet behind him, Dollar was down, blowing air in great heaves. He thrashed, unable to get up. Sharp approached the broad buckskin. He and Dollar had their disagreements, but the big fellow didn't deserve this. His right foreleg had found a hole. Snake, armadillo, prairie dog, didn't matter. 
Sharp knelt. Settle down, damn it. You're only making it worse. He put a hand to the horse's sweating neck and patted him. Dollar grunted through the pain. The white cannon bone of the broken leg stabbed clear through the hide. He was a good horse, and he was in agony. Sharp checked his colt, then wrestled with his conscience. He walked a small circle, screwing up his courage and measuring his humanity, then put his last round into the suffering animal. Chapter Two Sharp limped the three miles back to the bunkhouse, loaded down with a saddle, tack, bedroll, and busted-up camp gear. He had hiked farther, carrying more, and West Texas was significantly easier going than the Italian Alps had been, but his heaviest load was the guilt of putting down a good horse. The situation hadn't improved two hours later as he explained events to Howard Estes, the foreman at the Rafter B. The headquarters building had indoor plumbing, so Estes stood on one side of a bathroom door, while inside, Sharp twisted around with his pants around his knees, trying to remove the remaining prickly pear needles. So they got away. My horse went down, Howard. There wasn't much I could do. And now I gotta shake loose a couple of hands to go mend the wire. I'd have one or two of them keep watch along that northeast stretch. These guys might be back. Sharp winced as he plucked a particularly deep-set barb. There was a harumph from the far side of the door. Why exactly am I paying the association if I've got to supply my own men to ride the fence? Sharp buckled his belt and opened the door. The association is law enforcement and investigation, not a security patrol. You know that, Howard. I know it's cost me most of a dozen yearlings on top of your too damn expensive dues. I aim to give Lavelle a piece of my mind about this. He gave Sharp a nod and left him to find his own way out. Relieved of his duty, Sharp loaded his gear into the trunk of his dusty blue LaSalle coupe. He'd collected enough poker winnings on the troop transport ship home to afford a good used car. Most of the men had gotten back pay before shipping out, and that made for plenty of easy marks if a guy understood the finer points of stud poker. Sharp still had winnings from that trip stashed in a safe deposit box at the bank. He gingerly lowered himself onto the upholstery, thanking the interior designers at General Motors for the cushion on his abused backside. It was a long, slow drive back to town. A couple of empty parking spaces waited in front of the brand-new building that housed the Fort Worth and Western Stockmen's Association. The jazzy architectural style was topped by a flat roof, supported by picture windows that angled down to a knee-high wainscot of stacked limestone. A pale green color someone told him was called sage framed the glass. The new headquarters building was just one more thing Sharp didn't particularly care for about the association. In fact, about the only thing he did like was the paycheck. A small cloud of range dust followed him through the front door and into the cavernous room packed with secretaries and stenographers hammering away at the cattle registrations and auction transactions that oiled the cash machine of the association. Across the small sea of bobbing bouffants, E.G. Lavelle spotted him from behind the enormous window that overlooked his domain. 
Sharp, get in here. Lavelle never left his throne. Sharp doubted the executive director of the association could hoist his bulk out of the worn leather. The bald, well-fed director stuffed papers into a manila folder and ignored Sharp as he entered. Finally, he dumped an inch of ash off his cigar and stabbed the smowl-felling stogie at the wooden chairs across from his massive desk. Sit down. He stuffed the stogie back under his famous walrus mustache and wallowed it around as he spoke. I just got my ass chewed by Howard Estes at the raft of B. He jerked a thumb at the telephone. Sharp tried not to wince in front of his father-in-law as he eased his butt onto the hard ranch oak chair. They got away. There's two of them. They're using a truck and trailer and hitting before dawn. I think it's a Studebaker and... You think? You're not getting paid to think. You're getting paid to stop cattle thieves. Lavelle's volume increased and he punched the smoky air with his cigar. Why can't you do that? Stop them! Act, man! Don't just think! Well, there was something else. A light. Did it steal any cattle? No. What the hell are you worried about it for? The ladies in the typing pool tried hard to look like they weren't looking. This was unusual. Lavelle held up a chubby hand to stop him. Unusual. People have been stealing cattle for centuries, and you managed to find something unusual about it? You know, Sharp, I told Evelyn that I wasn't sure you were cut out for this. I told her you ought to go back to being a cop. But sitting around the Blackstone eating spud nuts probably suited you more than the real, genuine work involved in being a livestock detective. Lavelle's words were even and slow now explaining the obvious to a child. Sharp set his jaw. E.G., I've had a reasonably shitty day. I've been in a stampede, hiked three miles, and had to put a horse down. I, a horse? Dollar? We were after the truck. My dollar? An unsettling silence followed. Lavelle finally leaned back and took a long draw on his cheap Tampa cigar. He released a cloud of disappointment into the air and spit an offending particle of tobacco at the wall. I'm giving your cases to Smitty. He gets arrests. Of course he does, Sharp threw up his hands. But how many of those arrests end up in convictions? Arrests are easy. Getting them to stick and put people away is hard. Lavelle studied his cigar. That's what you don't understand about this business. An arrest takes these guys off the streets, puts up good, visible numbers. That's what our membership wants. They don't care about convictions. They just don't want these sons of bitches stealing cattle. You don't get that. I want to put them away. That's not the game. Lavelle heaved his bulk to one side and dug out his wallet, then threw a ten-dollar bill on the desk. Go home. Take Evelyn to a nice dinner. We'll talk about this tomorrow. Sharp glared at the cash. Let's talk about it today. What is it you aren't saying? Lavelle dumped another load of cigar ash and smoothed the enormous mustache. Cattle got stolen right out from under your nose. I can't have that. The membership can't have that. 
Sharp pulled a battered pack of lucky strikes from his shirt pocket and thumbed his zippo, his hands trembling at the insult. Now I have to figure out what to do with you, and I don't have time to do that right now. Lavelle reached for the next ever-present folder to dismiss his son-in-law. Sharp took a drag of his lucky and blew the smoke over his head to fight the cigar. He lost. He stood to walk out and stopped, then turned with a glare and snatched the ten-spot off the desk. Chapter Three a Fort Worth Water Department crew jackhammered away at the curb next door to Sharp's modest west side bungalow. One of them had parked a beige and cream Pontiac coupe in his driveway, so he parked on the street in front of the yard he needed to mow. He threw his gun belt over his shoulder and balanced his gear and bedroll on one hip as he opened the front door. He dropped the dusty saddle on the floor of the den and was about to sit down when he heard Evelyn from the back of the house. She was working hard on an orgasm, and it sounded like she had help. Sharp paused at the bedroom door, watching as Smitty's narrow ass humped under the sheet. He pulled his colt from the gun belt. Few sounds are as recognizable as a fresh magazine being snapped into an army-issue Colt forty-five, and its slide chambering a new round. Smitty froze in mid-stroke. Oh, God, don't stop. Evelyn was nearing the finish line. Y'all let me know when you're done. I just need to get a few things out of the closet. Sharp slid the colt back into its holster as much for his safety as theirs. Smitty jumped backward like he'd peed on an electric fence. He grabbed for the sheet, leaving Evelyn stark naked, squirming to hide under a pillow. Sharp? He was bruised, battered, caked in horses, blood, dirt, and three days' worth of beard, but Smitty's eyes were locked on the gun belt and the semi-automatic pistol resting under his hand. Smitty, I believe her daddy wants to see you. Sharp's eyes moved deliberately to the pistol. I think you'd rather be there right about now. Evelyn found her voice. What the hell are you doing home? Sharp answered with a narrow-eyed stare. Smitty grabbed his pants from the bedpost and nearly busted his ass trying to hop into them. For an instant, he looked like he wanted to say something, but Sharp beat him to it. You better get. I've had a bellyful of you today. Smitty grabbed his boots and ran. Outside, the jackhammering stopped as the Pontiac's tires chirped and he sped to safety. You leave him alone. Evelyn scrambled out of the bed, wrapping the sheet around her. Shut up, Evelyn. He went to the dresser and stuffed underwear in the duffel, then to the closet where he piled suits over one arm and topped the load with his city hat. Evelyn stamped her foot like the spoiled little daddy's girl she was. What are you even doing home? It's where my mail comes. I thought I'd stop by and check it. Sharp was holding it together well, he thought. Nobody was dead yet. Sorry if it cramped your social calendar. She cocked her fist to her hip defiantly. This isn't about me. It sure as hell doesn't appear to be about me. You're never home. 
She followed him to the front door, tripping over the sheet. Sharp grabbed his saddle and evened the load. I doubt I ever will be again. He slammed the door behind him. Chapter Four Sharp paused for a long time at the yield sign at the end of the block. He lit a lucky, and the morning caught up with him. He exhaled into the windshield and slumped deep into the seat. Now what? Angry, tired eyes stared back at him from the rearview mirror. He wasn't surprised, not even disappointed. There hadn't been much of a marriage there for the better part of a year, but he hadn't really expected it to end quite this abruptly. Now it seemed his entire world had been reduced to the car and its meager contents. He shifted into first with more determination than he really felt, promising himself that no matter how much he appreciated the LaSalle, it would not become his new residence. The first stop was the Rexall drugstore. He picked up some basic toiletries and mercurochrome for his more delicate wounds. The elderly woman at the counter frowned at his appearance and the smell of three days on the range. He removed his battered hat and nodded an apology. Ten minutes later, he pulled through the drive at the Skyline Motel on Highway 199. Not the swankiest place on Thunder Road, but reasonably clean. At this moment, cheap rent spoke volumes. It would do short term. He left Lavelle's ten spot as a deposit and parked in front of the door. It took two entire trips to the car to dump all of his worldly belongings on the bed. The bathtub had a shower head above and a faucet below. He turned on both, settled gingerly back into the tub, and then woke with a snort five minutes later, almost underwater. It had been a short night and long morning. Drowning in a motel bathtub would be icing on the cake. The shave and shower helped. He spotted on the neon pink ointment and stuck a couple of band-aids on the places that still leaked blood. His shoulder was sore as hell. He fingered the cotton ball out of his new aspirin bottle and popped a couple of tablets. His stomach growled as he strapped Lieutenant Jacobs' Hamilton timepiece to his wrist, and he found that not only was it lunchtime, but the watch's crystal had developed a thin crack during the morning's festivities. That figured. The watch had made it all across Italy, keeping excellent time and surviving the rigors of combat, but it marked today by cracking. He reminded the lieutenant to rest in peace and himself of his promise to take good care of it. He'd have to stop by Haltom's and get it fixed, right after lunch. He headed into town. Fort Worth was a growing community, and new money had been putting up skyscrapers downtown. At the corner of Fifth and Main stood the Blackstone Hotel, twenty stories of Art Deco cream limestone, sitting on top of what Sharp thought was the best lunch counter around. He'd just about finished his chicken-fried steak when Ronnie Arquette batted him with a rolled newspaper. You, she placed her copy of the Fort Worth Examiner on the bar, look like crap. She nodded to Peggy, the waitress behind the counter, and indicated she'd had the same blue plate special. I mean, more than usual. Every male eye in the place had followed her to the seat next to him at the counter. 
Veronica was just this side of gorgeous, with a figure that did amazing things for her blue dress. But to Sharp, she was still the tomboy little sister of his childhood buddy Dave. He'd also patrolled the Hell's Half Acre beat with her husband, Frenchie. He knew that behind the big brown eyes was a widow's soul who had lost her husband in Normandy and her brother in the Pacific. Sharp-eyed this older version of the pesky kid sister. Yeah, today's one of those days that just gets better and better. I'm sure I'm not taking that the way you meant it. Sharp dabbed the corner of his mouth. Nah, you probably are. She socked his bad shoulder and he winced. You're hurt? There was genuine concern in her voice. Like I said, rough day. Why don't you just go home? He shrugged his arm around the bruised shoulder, wondering about the uncomfortable grinding feeling in the joint. Well, home is complicated right now. Evelyn and you... She let the assumption hang in the air. Well, Evelyn and somebody. Oh. Sharp's eyebrows went up. Oh? People talk. She pulled out a compact and lipstick and did a little unnecessary touch-up. Just not to me. You knew about this? Her lunch arrived, and she concentrated far too much on measuring a spoon and a half of sugar into her iced tea. I don't get into other people's affairs. I see. He swallowed the last bite and dabbed his mouth. So, you know anybody with a room to rent? Can you pay rent? I have a little squirreled away. She chased gravy around her plate. How's that going to affect your job? Yeah, I'm probably looking for one of those, too. Back to the PD? She was inhaling her chicken fry like a hungry woman with only thirty minutes for lunch. Sharp thought a bit. His time with the Fort Worth Police Department had been tolerable. He liked being a cop, and that had allowed him to go into the service as a sergeant instead of a PFC, but those days were behind him. The FWPD's chief of detectives was one of E.G. Lavelle's running buddies, and he had about a snowball's chance in hell of getting back on as a detective once Evelyn started covering her ass. I don't think so. That reality hung in the cigarette-stale air while Ronnie cleaned her plate. Can you get a private investigator's license? We have lawyers who hire their own detectives. Ronnie was a reporter in Judge Rowan's district court. I've still got my peace officer's commission. That's through the state. Even mighty E.G. Lavelle can't take that away. Sharp nodded to Peggy, and the waitress reached across the counter and refilled his coffee. Any of your lawyers trade out for divorce work? Some might. We don't get divorce cases in our court, but I can get you some names if you're interested. In work or the divorce? Ronnie gave him a wink. Yes. With that, she was up and off, swatting him again with her copy of the examiner. Here, check the classifieds. They have rooms, jobs, furniture. Everything a newly minted bachelor needs. He took the paper and watched Ronnie head back to work without appreciating what every other male in the room enjoyed. The lunch crowd thinned out, and it dawned on Sharp he had nowhere to go and an excess of nothing to do, 
So he unfolded the classified section and ordered a piece of coconut cream pie. He borrowed a stub of a pencil from Peggy, who was infinitely more interested in the two potentially big-tipping businessmen at the other end of the counter. Left alone to his task, he circled three possible rooms to let, two small houses for rent, and a job listing for a man who could keep confidential information. The pie came and he folded the examiner to the news section. The shock hit when the first column above the fold revealed that mobster Bugsy Siegel had been shot dead in Beverly Hills. He had played a little poker across the table from Siegel on one of the gangster's frequent trips to see Doyle Deniker. Rumor held that some of the nightclubs on the outskirts of Fort Worth along the Jacksboro Highway were mob-owned joints. Sharp smiled at the memory. His favored poker table was at Deniger's 2222 Club. That table was a six-seat, green-felt combat zone centered in a hidden room in a secret nightclub left over from Prohibition. He'd won a bundle from Bugsy that night, and again the next night when the gregarious mobster returned to try and win it back. The wire report was filled more with juicy gossip and speculation than news beyond the fact that the mobster had been killed. But it made Sharp think. He hadn't been to the Four Deuces in a long while. Evelyn hated the place, and he'd tried to be a good husband. He shrugged, took a sip of his coffee, and knew exactly how he'd spend his first night of bachelorhood. Chapter 5 Sharp tossed his suit coat onto the motel bed and eyed his handcrafted Italian leather shoulder holster next to it. His patrol had liberated a small town in the foothills of the Alps, and the local harness maker had shown his appreciation by cobbling together pieces for the five survivors in the platoon. Sharp hadn't really wanted the rig, but found it to be a comfortable way to carry his forty-five and the old man was purely thankful that his wife and two toddling grandchildren had been saved from the Nazis. He slipped into the harness leather and slid his cut-down colt home. In the mirror, the suit coat hardly even bulged. He gave a mental thank you to Wu, the tailor who'd altered the suit to work around the holster. He knew most of the patrons at the club wouldn't be armed, but as a former cop, a former army officer, and now a former livestock detective, he felt naked without a sidearm. Came with the territory. He slid his hand into what Wu had called his detective's pocket, a hidden opening in the lining of the jacket that could hold an entire legal folder and leave the wearer's hands free. Sharp thought the main reason Wu had added it was because it tacked two dollars onto the price of the suit. Wu was a hell of a salesman, but it did come in handy when he wanted to appear to be an empty-handed ordinary Joe, and then, from out of nowhere, serve an arrest warrant on a cattle thief. He went to the closet where he'd carefully placed his hats, his battered resist-all cowboy hat and his city hat, a two-and-a-half-inch brim gray felt with a wide silk band and a more stylish crease and crown. It looked better with the subtle gray suit and the paisley tie. And, like he told folks, despite the boots he wore, he really wasn't a cowboy. He locked the hotel room behind him and wheeled the LaSalle onto what the maps called Highway 199, 
Most people in Fort Worth called it the Jacksboro Highway, as that was the next town of any consequence down the blacktop. But the old-timers who worked and lived along this stretch knew it as Thunder Road. His grandfather, the original Jefferson Sharp, told him stories of bootleggers roaring away from the speakeasies during Prohibition and hauling beer and liquor north and west to thirsty cowboys and equally parched oil-field roughnecks. The old man had winked and talked about making hay while the sun shone on that ripe market. Sharp had heard the booming exhaust pipes on the flathead Ford his grandfather continually tinkered with, and understood what put the thunder in Thunder Road. He also understood his grandfather was no angel. These days, Thunder Road was a festival of neon, nightclubs, restaurants, and motor court hotels. Bright signs split the night everywhere. Everywhere except the Four Deuces Club. The four twos of the address were neatly lettered on the intentionally ordinary mailbox beside a simple residential driveway that climbed a small wooded hill to a white two-story house. It looked to all the world to be the handsome home of a well-to-do businessman. Sharp drove past the mailbox and pulled in next door, where Rico's Mexican Dining Salon had its own neon circus blazing in pink, yellow, and blue glass tubes. Large painted windows fronted the roadway advertising Tex-Mex favorites and air conditioning. Smaller signs near the road pointed to a rear parking lot filled with upscale autos. He found an empty spot between a Mercury and a Packard. Rico had thirty cars in the lot, but just three patrons visible through the window paint. Sharp smiled at the maroon Cord 812 convertible parked at the base of the hill. Gentry Ferguson was here. It'd be an interesting night. Like the rest of the parking lot patrons, Sharp didn't head to the Mexican joint. Instead, he walked to a stone path that wound behind the hill and continued past an ivy-covered wall and into the woods. Sharp paused at the ivy and knocked on the door hidden behind the foliage. A small window slid open. Hey, Dutch, Jeff Sharp. I'm alone. The door opened in. The short, round attendant in the tuxedo gave him a once-over. Mr. Sharp, good to see you again. Anything to declare? I declare it's good to be here. Come on in. Dutch stole a look around and ushered Sharp into a dark anteroom. Sharp paused as his eyes adjusted and waited for the diminutive gatekeeper to open the hidden interior doorway. A buzz came from behind and one wall panel swung away. Push the door closed behind you, please, Dutch said for likely the hundredth time that evening. Through the door, the cramped hallway angled up and bent twice to the left. Sharp came to a third door and tapped out shave and a haircut. A gorilla-sized bouncer in an expensive suit opened the door into one of the most impressive nightclubs this side of Havana. Sharp smiled. He'd made some decent money in this room once upon a time. The smell of gin and beer and cigarettes mingled with a whiff of fine perfume. Home. Jefferson Sharp. He looked to his left and found the proprietor, Doyle Deniker, with a broad smile and an extended hand. 
Hello, Doyle. Good to see you. You've been missed, my friend. The stout, fifty-ish balding owner of the Four Deuces was wearing his signature white dinner jacket and black bow tie. Been working, out of town. Chasing cows for E.G. Lavelle, I hear. Doyle casually examined the burning end of his cigar. Well, a man's got to eat. Your talent isn't livestock. You belong at the table. Gentry's in town for a game if you'd like to join us. He pointed his cigar to a door on the far wall with private lettered in fine gold leaf. Sharp considered it for less than a heartbeat. I'll sit in a hand or two, if you've got an empty chair. Deneker smiled. For you? Always. My room opens at ten. I'll even stake your ante. Doyle was pushing a loophole in Texas gaming law that said he could host games of chance in his private home. Sharp admired Deneker's three-level, 6,500-square-foot residential game room, thinking this probably wasn't what the legislature had in mind when they envisioned little old ladies betting kitchen matches on a game of dominoes. I'll be there. Sharp put two fingers to his brow to say thanks. He surveyed the room. Doyle had a crowd at the two roulette wheels and four craps tables, all of which could fold into panels in the walls. To his left, a separate area housed a pair of rows of one-armed bandits. In case local authorities got too nosy, Sharp had seen them disappear under tables to be covered with floor-length linens, ornate silverware, and tea sets. He didn't figure those authorities were in a hurry to discover anything, because the county sheriff was throwing dice on one wall, while the wife of the district attorney was hypnotically feeding dimes into a slot machine near the main bar. The local law enforcement scene was covered. The real worry would be the Texas Rangers. Sharp turned toward the bar and winked at Jimmy the bartender's wide grin. Mr. Sharp, good to have you back. Usual? Sharp nodded. Good to be here. Jimmy slid a rocks glass across. Scotch, three ice cubes, and a splash of water. Sharp took a sip and smiled. Scotch just tasted better here. He tipped Jimmy and shook a lucky out of the pack. Money was in the room tonight. On the small corner bandstand, a tall man with ebony skin and a white handkerchief was mopping his brow and tucking his brass horn into a case. A doghouse bass lay on its side, and the tip jar on the piano overflowed with cash. He caught the trumpeter's gaze and raised his glass. Louis nodded and returned his famous grin. Sharp shook his head. Figured he'd just missed their set, but it explained the crowd. Word got around in these circles when Doyle had a private show. People came from miles around. Well, look what the cat dragged in. Sharp turned to find Leo Fuller looking over his martini. Hello, Leo. He shook the newspaperman's hand. You're looking dapper tonight. Leo's ability to overdress was legendary and the occasional target of his rival newspaper's cartoonists across the Trinity River in Dallas. Tonight, the Fort Worth Examiner's publisher was in a spotless tuxedo adorned with a perfect white carnation. Sharp hadn't seen spats in twenty years, but on Leo they worked. What brings you out tonight? 
celebrating or drinking away your troubles? Sharp cringed. Very little happened in Fort Worth that publisher Fuller wasn't wired into, especially when it concerned his friends and acquaintances. Sharp qualified on both counts, having learned the ropes of dealing with the press from Leo back when the publisher had been the examiner's star police beat reporter. Doyle asked me to join him at his table. I assume you'll be there? He didn't really want to explain his situation to Leo. Of course. Gentry's here tonight as well. But that doesn't answer my question. The brains behind Leo's thick round spectacles had moved him from the police beat to the city desk and then to editor-in-chief. By the time the war ended, ambition and the partnership of other people's money had made Leo Fuller the publisher, majority owner, and a wealthy man. But Sharp knew he was first and foremost a curious reporter. Everyone comes when Louis is in town. Sharp tilted his head to the bandstand. Is that what brings you in, or are you job hunting? Sharp spoke the truth. As far as I know, I still work for the association. So did Leo. Trust me, you don't. What's the word? Sharp inquired as to his own condition. E.G. booted your ass out the door, and Evelyn gave you the heave-ho. Well, that's one way to tell it, but I haven't seen anything that says all that. Sharp said with more confidence than he felt. My bet is that'll happen within the next twenty-four hours. I don't think you have to worry about going back to the association. I'm not. I'm done there. While Leo's star had risen during the war, Jeff Sharp had come home with a battlefield promotion, a handful of medals for making it through the war, and the scars to prove how difficult that had been but he landed with little more than his poker winnings and no prospects for a civilian job when the boat docked. Every former G.I. who'd ever wiped Cosmoline off a rifle snapped up the post-war jobs at the police department, and if not for Evelyn's old man at the Cattlemen's Association, well, he didn't want to think about that, although the cactus in his backside was a healthy reminder. Sharp checked his bare wrist, forgetting that he'd dropped Lieutenant Jacobs Hamilton at the repair shop. What time is it? Leo pulled out a gold pocket watch. 9.35. Pawn your watch? Sharp tapped out another cigarette and blew the smoke over Leo's head. It's at Haltom's getting a new crystal, smart guy. Busted it chasing cattle rustlers. Oh, joy. So you and Gentry will be talking shop all through the game. Gentry deals with a better class of rustlers than I do. Mine aren't in the Screen Actors Guild, and they shoot real bullets. Why is it gunfire seems to follow you around? It's a gift. Leo's eyes moved past him, and Sharp turned to follow his gaze. I figured you'd be here. Ronnie wagged an accusing finger as if demanding an explanation. Sharp studied the end of his cigarette. It's my first night out in a long time. But you? This is a little risque for an upstanding member of the judicial branch. Pshaw, Judge Rowan is here all the time. Mr. Fuller, how are you? Leo toasted her. Even better now that you've brightened the room, Mrs. Arquette. She kissed the air next to his cheek, 
Sharp rolled his eyes. Seriously, Ronnie, this isn't your kind of joint. What's up? I have a date. Sharp's eyebrows went up. On a Tuesday? He looked around and didn't see anyone unusual. She pointed her clutch behind Sharp, and he turned to see a ghost. Walking toward him with a noticeable limp was an Army Air Force major in full uniform. His pencil-thin mustache gave him a hint of Clark Gable, and his dark eyes went from Ronnie to Sharp and back again with a flash of recognition. Son of a bitch. Sharp knew the flyer immediately. Ronnie punched him in the arm again. This time, he didn't flinch. The major stopped in front of Sharp, and they locked eyes. Finally, they said, almost in unison, I thought you were dead. Then each smiled, and they embraced like long-lost brothers. I'll be damned. Sharp shook his head again. Leo and Ronnie watched the entire scene play out. Finally, she said, I take it you two know each other? We damn sure do, said the Major, busting into a wide grin. But I can't tell you your name to save my life. Sharp followed suit. Well, we were never formally introduced. I'm Jeff Sharp. Jerry Cartwright. And I feel bad since you really did save my life. Right after you saved mine. Ronnie looked from one to the other. This is a story I need to hear. Sharp doffed his hat and ran a hand through his hair. He heaved a great sigh and nodded. I found the major hanging in a tree somewhere outside of San Marino. He'd just saved our butts by strafing a German artillery encampment. Those guys were good with their artillery. We were waiting for the last round to fall on us when the major here played the guardian angel in his P-38 and took them out. The major chuckled. They weren't just good with the arty. Their ACAC crews were damn good. Ronnie looked at Leo. ACAC? The newspaperman fitted a cigarette to his holder to buy some time. He looked uncomfortable. Sharp grinned. Leo had been 4F and missed the fun and games that had been the Second World War. Anti-aircraft. It's a big machine gun that makes that nasty sound. We heard them open up on you while we were running for the trees. I looked up in time to see the round take one of the tail booms right off your plane. He raised his glass to the major. Makes them damned hard to drive when they do that. The pilot nodded back. Sharp's gaze focused on the memory. Half an hour later, I'm wandering through the woods, cut off from what was left of my platoon, and I hear this voice up in the trees asking if I've got a knife. I look up, and there's the major hanging twenty feet off the ground with his parachute tangled in the trees. As I recall, you tried to catch me when I cut myself loose. He shrugged at Ronnie's horrified expression. I was pretty sure you were going to break your neck. Nope, just my leg. In training, they told us that the air pressure would just suck us straight out of the cockpit, that bailing out of a P-38 wouldn't be any problem. He tapped the cane against his stiff leg. They lied. Leo tapped his pocket watch. Gentlemen, I would remind you that Doyle is big on punctuality. 
Some things never change. Sharp eyed the bar and considered another drink. The major looked quizzical. You're at Doyle's table? Sharp nodded. Used to be a regular. Things kind of got in the way. Ronnie piped up. His wife wouldn't let him come play. Sharp shot her an irritated look. When you're trying to make things work, you don't stay out playing cards every Tuesday. Apparently, that helped the situation a great deal, Leo said with a wink. Good to see you, Mrs. Arquette. Major, Sharp, I'll see you at the table. Best of luck this evening. He turned and went to have his martini refreshed. The major looked at his date. You want something before we start? Ronnie smiled. A gin fizz. Be right back. Ronnie's smile melted as the major limped to the bar. Now you've done it. Thanks a lot, Jefferson. She drew out the pronunciation the way his mother had when they were kids and he was in trouble. What'd I do? He and I were going to have a long talk tonight. He thinks this is a great night out. Takes me to a hideaway club on a Tuesday so he can play poker. Huh. So you're dating? She flushed and searched his face for a hint of disapproval. Then she looked at her shoes and her voice became soft. It's been three years, Jeff. Her eyes were moist when she looked up. He swallowed hard. Hey, no, Ronnie, I think that's great. I'm happy for you, really. You deserve a break. You're due some good times. You mean that? Sharp bobbed his head toward the major at the bar. Of course, and hey, look, I don't know him well, but he saved my ass in Italy, so he's a good guy in my book. A good guy, yeah, but he thinks I like sitting around yanking a slot machine while he plays poker. It's boring, she feigned a yawn. Maybe he's had enough excitement for one lifetime. Yeah, his idea of excitement is getting cherries in his Coke. So dump him. The idea seemed obvious to Sharp. Is that your advice as a recent dumpy? Sharp acknowledged the barb with a raised glass. Touché. Besides, it looks like you two are pals. I wouldn't call us friends, but if he hadn't shown up when he did, I'd still be in a hole in Italy. I spent two days dragging him through the forest. He got beat up pretty bad when they shot him down. He was out of it most of the time. What's he doing here? Sharp tinkled the ice in his glass. He was due for a refill as well. He's got some big deal job over at the airbase. Runs off at the drop of a hat. Just leaves me hanging. Asks me out, then calls the day of to tell me he's got to go to Alaska or Nevada or Washington or somewhere. Although one time he did it, and two weeks later I saw him talking to Howard Hughes in the newsreels. That Howard Hughes, the multimillionaire? Jerry says he's forgotten more about airplanes than most people ever know. Hmm, Sharp pondered a moment. Maybe he's working on the atomic plane. There's an atomic plane? Must be. I saw it in Popular Mechanics at the barber shop. Sharp moved, and this time she punched his good arm. She slug you all the time, Sharp? The major had returned with their drinks. 
Sharp noticed the majors had two maraschino cherries. Ever since she was eight. Her brother hit her back, but my mom wouldn't let me hit girls. Chapter Six The hanging Tiffany lamp gave a glow to the cloud of cigarette smoke and the green felt poker table below, but the rest of the room, with its textured red velvet wallpaper and rich oak paneling, remained in the shadows. You went to find a medic, and not ten minutes later the German patrol showed up, the Major explained to Sharp over his cards. I saw the rest of the war through the barbed wire around different Stalags and POW hospitals. Sharp felt a pang of regret. Yeah, I was a lot of help, running around the forest yelling for medics like it was blind man's bluff. He shot a glance at the big man across the table, and Gentry Ferguson gave a knowing nod. He'd been to Europe, too. And one for the blind man. Doyle slid a blue-patterned playing card face down to Sharp, who slipped it off the felt with the practiced ease of a man who'd done it ten thousand times. The five of clubs nestled neatly between the five of hearts and the five of diamonds in his left hand. A pair of jacks looked on. His eyes moved slowly to the stack of chips in front of him. Then he casually selected a few and tossed them into the pile in the center of the table. I'll see your ten and raise two. Across the table, the famous blue eyes flicked between the center pile of chips, his own hand, and his old friend Jeff Sharp. Every person in the building knew Gentry Ferguson, the King of the West. He and Chief, the Wonder Horse, were big boffo box office in Hollywood, but at Doyle's table he was just another hand of poker. He came to Fort Worth to get away from the flashbulbs and the fans and didn't have to hide the receding hairline under a ten-gallon hat. Damn shame about Bugsy. Sharp put a pack of luckies to his mouth and pulled out a cigarette. Gentry's eyes met his, looking for more meaning in the comment. Leo chimed in. Occupational hazard, I believe. If the cops have guns on you and the mob has guns on you, crossfire is a genuine possibility. Doyle leaned in, watching to see how the man who'd brought Bugsy to this very table would play it. Gentry rolled a ten-dollar chip across three fingers and looked from his cards to Leo, then Sharp. Gentry had a tell or two, and Sharp now knew the actor would be bluffing. He had a habit of toying with the chip when he didn't have the cards. Mr. Publisher, Bugs and I go way back. If you're looking for a word against him for your editorial page, it's not coming from me. Gentry adopted a menacing look, which made Sharp think that while Gent was a good actor, he wasn't that good an actor. Not at all, Leo lied and adjusted the thick spectacles that had kept him home while men like Sharp and Gentry had gone off to Europe to fight the Huns. He pushed his chips under the growing pile. I'll raise five. Gentry frowned and pushed in chips. I'll stay in. Between Gentry and Major Cartwright sat a drunk whom Sharp had never seen before. He'd been introduced to the table as Myron, a landman who enjoyed a good game. Usually this was a friendly game and strangers weren't invited, but when Sharp shot Doyle a questioning look, 
The table's owner rubbed fingers and thumb together to indicate the guy was loaded and could be an easy mark. And he was. Myron tossed down his drink and angrily folded his hand. I'm out. Again. Sharp looked at his stack of chips and calculated that he'd taken almost twenty bucks off the drunk. The guy should stick to old maid. Sharp smiled and pocketed his smokes and Zippo. When he looked up, Myron, the drunken landman, had a surprise. A snub-nosed thirty-eight pointed right at Sharp's noggin. You palmed that card. The drunk's tongue was thick. He'd been guzzling gin and tonics for an hour and a half. The gun wavered over the pile of chips. Sharp slowly moved his hands to the tabletop before answering. Easy there, friend. Don't friend me. You're pulling a fast one here. I see what's going on. Sharp paid him some attention now. Behind the gun was an expensive suit, tailored, so he hadn't noticed the bulge of the shoulder holster. And now this doughy drunk had the drop on him. His mind kicked into gear. If I was cheating, don't you think I'd be winning? Sharp pointed two fingers and a cigarette at the pile in the middle of the table. Leo was winning the evening. Sharp doesn't cheat. Doyle, coming to his defense, helped, but the gun swung to him. You're in this, too. You probably get a cut. Doyle's eyes widened and then immediately narrowed as his face reddened and his angry jaw tightened. The gun swung back to Sharp. Let's see him. Sharp put the lucky in his mouth. Slowly, the drunk slurred. Sharp almost bit off the end of the cigarette. He deliberately counted out his five cards face down on the table. His eyes never left the drunk. In the sleeves. This drunk was really getting his goat. Slowly, smart guy. Sharp's stare bored through the smoke. He shot his cuffs. Nothing. I don't allow cheating in my place. The gun wavered back to Doyle. You had to have more stupid than Moxie to put a gun on Doyle Deneker. Very few were still around to brag about that. Or gunplay. The drunk's voice rose. I'm out almost fifty bucks. He jumped to his feet, his chair crashing back into the wood-paneled wall. The noise took the drunk's attention and Sharp came to his feet, jerking the colt from his jacket. The drunk turned back to a face full of Sharp's forty-five. He blinked a bit to clear his eyes. I, uh, I don't want no trouble. No, you really don't. Now why don't you put that smith on the table before I change the way you part your hair? He'd been on the wrong end of a gun more than once, and the feeling always ticked him off. The drunk wavered. Slowly, Sharp reminded him. Just then, the door to Sharp's right opened, and one of the cigarette girls came in, spilling out over the top of her red bustier. Do you gentlemen need any... Oh, shit. That was the opening Gentry Ferguson needed. The movie cowboy came out of the chair with a big right fist that caught the drunk on the chin and put his lights out. The studio PR machine made sure the world knew Gentry had genuine guts and had parachuted into the French coast the night before D-Day. 
and, as the drunkard just learned the hard way, Gentry did his own stunts. Sharp holstered his colt and gave an impressed nod to the actor. Thanks. Gentry flashed his celebrated grin. Thanks, hell. The son of a bitch was going to cost me the pot. He flipped over his cards and proudly revealed two pair, threes and sevens. Sharp smiled. He'd picked up the tell and Gentry hadn't disappointed. His full house would bring home this pot. But Leo had other plans. No, he wasn't. He grinned and it made his tortoiseshell cigarette holder tilt up at a jaunty angle that Leo thought made him look like FDR. It didn't. He had a pair of eights on the felt and then another pair of eights next to them with a king high. Shit, Leo, Doyle, Gentry, and Sharp all said it at once. Leo gave a sly smile and pulled his golden pocket watch from his tuxedo. Gentlemen, it has been a true pleasure this evening, but I really do need to go put the examiner to bed. He raked the pile across the table while Doyle stepped to the door and waved for a couple of bouncers. Gentry frowned. Now I need a chance to win that back. How long are you here? Leo calculated a chance at additional winnings. Gentry thought a beat. At least another week. We're shooting in Utah the end of the month. Leo nodded. Beautiful place. Gentry grinned. We're just there to fill in the gaps in the scenery for Vistascope. God knows there's no place hotter than Monument Valley in July. I think Ford's trying to kill us. The major chimed in. Are you chasing Indians or bank robbers this time? Gentry laughed. I think it's a train heist. Just got the script. Chief has to outrun a locomotive. Quality cinema. Leo filled his handkerchief with chips and waddled out to the cashier across the main floor to collect his winnings. Doyle's gorillas collected the snoozing drunk from the carpet and escorted him to a side door. Sharp knew from a past rapid evacuation of the premises that the door led to a long tunnel that opened through what appeared to be a walk-in freezer door in the kitchen of Rico's Mexican joint next door. The drunk would wake up at a table with a cup of cold coffee and a hangover and never know how he got there. Doyle picked a business card from the carpet where the drunk had been sleeping. He frowned, then gave Sharp a look. Can we talk a moment before you leave? In my office? You've got to feel for a guy who loses everything before he even gets to have lunch. In episode 2, we step behind the door of Doyle Deneker's private office and see what he has in store for Jefferson Sharp. After all, it's not like things along Thunder Road can get much worse. Can they? So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, 
please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you so much. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. And check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms, as well as our background episodes, where we unwrap exclusive content related to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.